Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. In my body and mind right now, you know, I'm feeling like a rebel. I'm feeling like every thought that comes up that doesn't feel like me, that feels like it may be coming from the roots of an oppressed person, of the oppressor. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know if that's mine to hold. And I'm like rebelling against all of these thoughts and feelings. So I'm in a very like rebellious kind of like liberation space right now, which is amazing on one hand because it's a you know I'm feeling a lot of freedom flowing through me freedom that I've been looking for for a long time but at the same time it's work it's very much like you are calling into question like every single thought every emotion every habit and it is work that is work first of all amazing that you are actually like hearing them noticing them and just being like you know what I don't accept these that's no longer my ministry. I'm going <laughs> to look at me plugging my own podcast. I'm going <laughs> to hold on to these feelings. But also, like, I've been in spaces like that before. I don't know if I've been as, like, clear-minded as it sounds like you are, but I've been in spaces like that before. And like you said, it's really exhausting to have to undo every thought you have because you're realizing it's not coming from a place of self, but it's coming from a place of an oppressor. And what are some of these thoughts that like you've been calling into question recently? I mean, it honestly, every single thought that I can manage to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, So perfect example at work, if somebody like pings me and I have the thought, oh, I need to get back to them immediately. I ask myself, wait a minute, where is that coming from? Is that coming from an actual need that somebody needs a fast response? Or is it more so I've been conditioned to believe that in this capitalist society that we live in, I need to be constantly producing, constantly productive for someone else. And so therefore I need to show up at a level that doesn't feel right for me. Right. And I literally did that right before this, this call. And I find myself in those loops so consistently that they're patterns, they're patterns that need unpacking. And so that's one of them even in conversations with friends, right? Like I've, I've found that when I'm having a conversation with an old friend where we're checking in and catching up on how things are going, sharing successes and, and fun things that are happening in each other's lives. When I have a friend who tells me, Hey, like this big thing happened for me. And I feel a little twinge of like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm not moving that fast in my life. That kind of like jealousy or judgment. I question that it's like, Oh, wait, where is that actually coming from? Is that from me? Or is that coming from the wounded me that feels like she's being abandoned or feels like that she's not getting the love that she needs? Mm -hmm. That's like totally different than how I used to approach it, which was just like 
following in with the loop and like letting myself get taken by it and embodying and like and actually associating my sense of identity with the jealousy or with the fear or with the pain. Yeah, that's been a big one for me too, is like trying to stop that before it becomes what you spend your time thinking about, I feel like. Because I just even yesterday, I, you know, a group of friends were talking about different workouts they were trying. And, and I was just like, man, if only I could be like that. Meanwhile, literally every day this month so far, I'm doing like a running challenge. I run at least three miles. This morning I got up and ran six miles. Like, why am I, why am I downplaying myself? <laughs> because I hear of something different that other people are doing. And it's like that, that um, urge to just all of a sudden be like, okay, now time to play the comparison game. Yep. But why, why do we do that? That's not, yep. that's not helpful for anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and it's so funny because when you question the roots of it, it's like, no, we were conditioned to do this. Like we were conditioned to to judge and to compare. That's something that we did when we were in elementary school and we saw, you know, bullies in the playground doing it. And where were the bully, like, where was that coming from? There's like, there's so many layers of pain that lead us to these spaces of comparison or judgment that aren't ours necessarily, but come from so many people repeated over so many generations. And I think that like part of, part of recognizing it in ourselves, one is liberating us, but it's liberating everyone else around us. And I think that's the importance of this work. It's like, every time you unpack a shadow, every time you confront a pain, every time that you have compassion for your fear, you're liberating someone else too. And I think that's really magic. Yeah. I, I'm wondering too, if you're getting so much in, deeper into this when this is really just meant for me to see how you're doing, but like, <laughs> I always do this. That, I always do this. You know, you're saying like this comparison tendency has been built in us. It also exists in a lot of frameworks that we're still actively engaged in, right? Because I love the sentiment of letting go all of that. But at the same time, I work in corporations and the, the environment in which we work in is show your impact and we're going to measure up against your peers to see who showed the most impact, right? And so it's hard for you to be like, I just want to do good work when you know that at the end of the day, you're, it doesn't matter if you do good work. I mean, it does, but part of the measurement is did you do as good of work as everyone else or more or better, were you the best? Like that's built into the frameworks in which we work. So how can you like kind of let go of that when everyone around you is also operating from that framework? Oh my God, I think that's the trillion dollar question. I think that there, this, like that is such an important question because it, it really, it calls into question the economic system that we are a part of. Like it, it, it does ask the question, like, is capitalism as it stands today, supporting the whole person? Is it actually taking into account all of the value that you, Nadia, as a, a wonderful human brain being brings to the corporation that you work for? And I would say the answer is no. And I think that's why a lot of us don't feel fulfilled in the work that we do because we work in spaces that undermine our fullness, that undermine all that we can offer. And so I think in lieu of like an overhauling of the entire economic system, which that's a whole other conversation. Which I we think, would love, but. Which we would, right, right. But like, I think in the meantime, we can, we can resist and we can rebel. If not externally, internally, like you can tell yourself, we can tell ourselves like, 
all right, you're going to compare me against others, but I know my worth isn't that. I know my worth isn't what you're going to put on my peer review or what you're going to say to my manager. That actually has nothing to do with the spirit that I am and all of the light that I can bring to this space and other spaces. So I think it's, again, just like being that rebel in every space, even if it's not like you're like saying it out loud, but just saying it to yourself, like, no, I know I'm more than this, which so much easier said than done. At this point, I think it's a great opportunity to introduce you to the listeners. <laughs> so why don't you tell the listeners your name, who you are to you, it doesn't have to be professional, just who you are um, and some of the values that you hold. My name is Nellie, Nellie Coffee, and I am in the process of becoming. So right now I am an entrepreneur. I started an awesome brand called Sun Chaser. It's on a mission to reimagine drinking. I'm a writer and I'm an artist. Those are the three kind of pillars of my life that have been pushing me through some major evolution over the last few months. Um, And I am in the process of changing. So a lot of shifts that are happening in my identity, a lot of that coming and stemming from shadow work and going inward and, and finding the roots of a lot of pain and trauma and using that as a way to just rise higher in my own personal light and share more about, um, you know, how I see a new consciousness rising. So there's a lot, there's a lot of energy there. I would say it, it feels really fluid, which is very new for me because I'm used to being, um, a very like disciplined go-getter type, type A person. Um, but I'm shifting and that feels really good. Is that shifting something that's just taking place recently or in like, how, when would you say that shifting started for you? Cause I also used to be a very, like, get everything done. <laughs> I feel like this year I'm just like, but why do you have to get everything done? Like just get what you need done for you to feel good. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Retweet, preach. Yes. I mean, you know, if you talk to my coach, she would say the shift has been happening for a long time. Like I am coming to the end of a, a large cycle in my life for the last 13 years. I was very focused on discipline, being a go-getter. I grew up in a very, very white space that was very privileged. And I was one of the few black kids who was not of that upper echelon in terms of wealth privileged in love, privileged in discipline, privileged in a rich cultural history, for sure, um, but not in those external measures. And so I spent a lot of time from 13 to 26 trying to compete in really prestigious spaces. So I went to a, got into a very elite New England boarding school and used that as a way to get into an Ivy League university and like used all of these credentials as ways to say, I'm valuable. Like, look at me. Like I'm, I'm, I, I actually have something to offer the world. Like I'm lovable because right as black people were taught, you're not lovable. You can work twice as hard and get half as much. And nobody's really going to look at what you have to offer. And so I think the last 13 years, I've really been operating within that system and starting in 2019. So this is actually pre pandemic. Every single one of my foundations started breaking down. The discipline started leading to spaces that didn't necessarily feel right for me. My choices were not in alignment with where I actually wanted to go. I like my I I, could, I even feel it now sometimes where 
I can't, I couldn't articulate myself in the way that I used to words literally weren't coming out in the same way. I had lost the words and each of those at the moment, I did not know what was going on, but with further reflection and more time I've seen, that was all pushing me inward. That was all saying, you've been focusing on the external. You've been focusing on pushing and showing everyone else that you're worthy, that you're valuable. You're now being called inward to find the true bedrock. And so it's been about two years of like real deep, like you're being called inward and it's been powerful. It's been painful. Um, but it does feel in alignment with where I'm seeing a lot of other people going to. So I I know I'm not the only one. I think this is a trend. Yes. And we're going to get into that for sure. But first we're going to get into our first segment, which is called, so you've been told, and this is where we do a lot of myth busting, I will say. And in this season two, um, I'm trying to focus more on some narratives that were myth busting. And so perfect introduction, because you mentioned you're an entrepreneur. Love that. Um, One thing that I wanted to dive into in this segment is just the makeup of entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of us believe or at least have seen or have been told that entrepreneurs are, it's a very white space, which it is. But some things that I pulled that I wanted to talk about was the fact that Black women are actually far outpacing other racial and ethnic groups as far as entrepreneurship Black women represent 42% of new women-owned businesses. This was taken from a Forbes article from 2020, um, which is three times their share of female, of the female population, um, and 36% of all Black-owned employer business. So love that for Black women. And one quote that I pulled was actually from an article you were interviewed in. (laughs) But I loved this quote because you said, for Black women, you don't have to climb the ladder you can build your own. So I would love to hear more about you and Sun Chaser and how you're building your own ladder. Ooh, wow. Okay. I love this. We're getting deep. This is good. Um, wow. This is such a good question. I'm going to take a second and just yeah. feel into the right, the right words. I grew up with two parents immigrant parents who were so focused on education. They were like, this is your way out of a life of less than, and this is how you can take yourself from where you are to a higher space. And in that path, I was always taught that it's about getting a good job and stability. In my later teens, both of my parents lost their jobs. Both of them like having focused on working all the time, like my mom working like three jobs, my dad being an engineer, my mom being a lawyer, there was just so much focus on work. And when I saw that taken away from them, I really did see that jobs as I had thought they were don't actually have stability. And that was a light bulb for me, like, oh, wait a minute, maybe this actually isn't the right space for me. Maybe like putting all of my eggs into one person's basket climbing one person's ladder, maybe that's actually not a good fit because it's not as safe as it looks. And so from that place of insecurity, a seed was definitely planted around like, hey, could I create something of my own? Could I create, could I bet on myself essentially? And so um, I spent all of college kind of teeter-tottering between different career options for myself. 
but landed on entrepreneurship as like a path for me to cultivate my own sense of inner power. It, that's really where it came from. Love and it. yeah, and I, I long story short, worked in New York and ended up getting a job um, out in the Bay at Google, where I met my co-founder for Sun Chaser. And it, it all came really quickly, but the intention behind like betting on myself really led me to Sun Chaser. It led me to this concept. It led me to the idea that I could, I could put out a product into the world that could make an impact and that could like actually transform or at the very least improve lives. And I think that's a narrative that we as Black folk do not hear enough. I think we hear a lot of like, just go to school and get a good job. Not enough of like, you have something to say and your beliefs, your opinions can translate into products, into services that can serve others. And in doing so, you can build wealth, you can build influence, yes, but most importantly, like you can make a real impact. And so that's what led me to Sun Chaser. I will caveat all of this by saying the entrepreneurial journey is so whitewashed Yes, in that it is so steeped in privilege. It's so steeped in the idea that like you can just quit your job and start a business and the customers will come and you'll, you'll pay yourself the money. It's like, no, no, no. When you're raised in a space where like you literally have to take care of your parents or you need to send money to a family member, like you cannot be doing that. Right. You actually, you have to be able to stabilize yourself financially too. And I I learned that lesson the hard way. Mm -hmm. And so I think for like all of the black entrepreneurs out there, it's okay. If you need to work a job while you're building your business, like you can climb someone's ladder or at the very least be in someone else's corporation while you're building your own. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's like, love that you say this because I would say most of the people that I am very close to who are also in um, a corporate environment are doing this for now. Like it's a great way to stack some money, you know, be able to do that so you can focus on what you actually want to do. Cause that's one thing, like I am not built <laughs> for the corporate lifestyle. I'm just not, but at the same time, I'm very good at navigating it and navigating it helps me do what I love to do, which is like my creative work, this podcast, my healing work, my poetry, all of that stuff is a lot easier if I have funds. <laughs> if I have a roof over my head in California where it's very expensive, like these are things. And so I love that you're saying like, you can do that. You can work a job and pursue your business. And I, that's what I loved about knowing your background is like, you're an entrepreneur and you're also working like outside of that. And you are making it work. And I did want to call to attention. I like that you said that it's very whitewashed space. Cause one thing I pulled for this particular segment is black business owners who apply for funding, have a rejected a rejection rate of three times higher than their white counterparts. And I was wondering if you encountered this along your journey in building your business um, and how you've been navigating it. And maybe if you have some tips for some people who are listening, who are thinking about starting their own business or, or are navigating it right now when they're running into these same problems. Oh my God. I mean, this is such a crucial question because I run into this every single day. Right now in some cases, we're at a really interesting critical juncture where we need additional capital to scale. We need additional capital to be able to create the impact we want to make. And in conversations with investors, there's always the energy of you need to share more. 
You need to give us more, more data. You need to prove that this is worthy. And in conversations with mentors, like we share this information. They're like, you know, it's funny. These three white guys over here at this brand raised five times the amount of money you're looking for with a deck with way less information. And so that data point alone says, okay, we're actually coming up against like systemic issues in how black business owners and female entrepreneurs get capital. And there's a problem here. The way we've navigated it so far is honestly going down the more traditional route. So taking SBA loans has been really, really valuable. And I would encourage any listener who is looking for funding or looking for capital in their business, like check out your local SBA chapter. Like that is actually a place where you can find some good low hanging fruit in terms of capital to keep you going. Um, I would also say like, look for angels, look for angel investors who are value aligned, who want to support women, who want to support people of color. They're out there. They exist. Um, do your research and look for them. Um, that's been really powerful for us as well, but I can't lie to you. It's hard. It's really hard to come up against these walls and have to like do the inner work of saying, okay, I know this isn't a me problem. I know this is a system problem and I'm going to have to get around the system. Yeah, I, I've heard this so many times and in my nine to five, I do work to support small businesses. And so like I'm speaking to a lot of business owners and particularly black business owners who talk about this all the time. It's just, it's definitely not a personal thing. You can have all the information in the world, but it is just running rampant how, how bad it is. And even getting loan approvals, like you see that black owned and, um, and Latinx owned businesses generally tend to get denied a lot more for loans. And a lot of times I know like for black women entrepreneurs, they end up putting most of their um, finance, like a lot of the funding that they have to put up is like on their credit cards, like savings accounts upfront just to get it off the ground. And, And of course we see so many successes, but that's a lot of money to have to put into something when you're also taking care of families um, taking care of your own kids, taking care of like your people abroad. Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses are also immigrants. Right. So, you know, thinking about my own dad coming here and still supporting his entire family back in Nigeria while working. Um, it, it is a burden, right. And people don't often think about that with, you know, communities that are marginalized who are starting their own businesses. Absolutely. And I have to say, this is something that we as black entrepreneurs, like it's our job to share our experience. Like it's our job to call attention to this because I think a lot of investors, I think loan agencies, I think a lot of these folks just need to hear our stories. They need to know that we're out here, that we're trying our best to make an impact and we need people to reach out across the divide and meet us halfway. Yeah. And to close the segment, um, tell people what Sun Chaser is. Like, what is it? Where can they get it? We want to support your business. Absolutely. Uh, Sun Chaser is an alcohol-free drink designed to give you a buzz. Um, We started it with a mission to reimagine drinking. I was sick and tired of taking good care of my body and mind during the week, doing my workouts, drinking my green juices, eating my vegan diet. And then the minute the weekend rolled around and pre-games and happy hours came into the picture, I would drink and feel 
absolutely terrible. And awful. so, <laughs> right? Like awful, especially when you're like on a clean streak and then you're like, I'll just have a couple beverages with friends. And then the next day you're like, I feel horrid. Yeah. You're like, what have I done to myself? And now I like, can't wake up to work out. I like, don't even want to leave my bed. And so my co-founder and I, we both being super active people, we were like, this is ridiculous. Like, let's try to find a better way. And so we spent about six months formulating our own essentially combination of supplements. So supplements are called nootropics. If you've heard of adaptogens, they're in a very similar category. Um, What nootropics do is that they impact your brain cognition. And so a good example is caffeine. When you drink caffeine, you feel more alert. Some people feel a little jittery. Uh, We did research on supplements that make you feel more relaxed, that help you take the edge off. And so We spent six months literally ordering any supplement we could find that had peer-reviewed medical evidence of some sort of relaxation property and combined them, tested them on ourselves. And we came across a combination that we loved. Um, We tested it on our friends. We got it out to a manufacturer. We did the work of getting, you know, flavors and, and all of that good stuff together. And it's been about two years of just like really refining the product and, really getting it market ready. So we're online. You can find us on our website at drinksunchaser.com. We're still very early on in our journey, but very excited about all that's to come. And let's move on to our next segment, my favorite segment, because I get to ask you what's no longer your ministry. So let's talk about it. I feel like when we first chatted, I didn't even know that I wanted you on the podcast. We were just doing like a quick half hour sync. Like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, And we just got into this really amazingly rich conversation about shadow work, which I had never heard of it referred to as that before. So I knew that I wanted to dive deeper because I'm sure there are some listeners who are like, what's shadow work? Um, But yes, what's no longer your ministry? And tell us a little bit about shadow work. Absolutely. I would say what's no longer my ministry at this moment is that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. That is no longer my ministry. Um, It may be for the systems that we're a part of, but for me in my work, I don't hold that belief anymore. And to quickly touch on shadow work, shadow work is the process of going inward and looking at the root of your pain, essentially. And it's looking at what are the, the beliefs? What are the traumas? What are the wounds that are activating my fear response, that are activating my judgment, that are activating the shadows in me that lead me to get out of my light, that get me out of alignment with who I truly am? And so, for example, if, if you see somebody who's in judgment, somebody who's judging another person, shadow work asks you to say, instead of saying, hey, this is a bad person, they judge other people, shadow work asks you to say, oh, where's the judger in me? Where's the person who's judging myself, judging others? And where does that come from? And so in the process of shadow work to connect kind of to what's no longer my ministry, I realized that a very wounded part of me believed that I was half as valuable as everybody else who had a lighter color skin than me, because I was conditioned to believe that people with melanin, people with darker skin are less worthy, are less valuable. And the process of shadow work has asked me to go back to every single moment where I believed, truly believed that I was half as valuable and give that little girl a hug and compassionately say, I am here for you. 
you are worthy. I love you. Let's let this bag go. Yeah. Dang. That's, Ooh, that is some, that is some rough work. Um, and we'll get into that and it's the work for me, but I think some of the things that you just said that I want to dig into is like going back to those moments and really digging into where these beliefs, these myths came from. And, you know, as black women, we know they come at us from every angle, right? You could enter a space. And I know personally, like if I go into a space where I see somebody with a certain type of energy, I can already tell that they don't think I'm as valuable as they are. And that can be really triggering, right? Unless you do some work to be able, like condition yourself to be able to see that and be like, that's just not true. Like, like you have to be like, nah, bitch. Like that's, it's just not true. And like, but as a younger person, that was not something I was able to, to hang on to. And so I'm curious, like, do you have a particular memory in mind when it comes to like a visceral feeling of like, you know what, I'm not, I'm half as good as the people around me. Right. Cause I know you, you grew up in predominantly white institutions as well. So I can see some of that coming into play. Ooh, yes. Um, it's interesting because I can trace back to a lot of different memories, but the one that's striking out for me is one that it's actually a story I haven't shared publicly before, but it's one that has energized a lot of trauma in me, a lot of pain that I have had to work to unpack. And I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Connecticut in a very privileged waspy neighborhood and area. And I was lucky enough to get into a, a program that helped Black and Latino, Latinx communities get into prestigious schools, prestigious prep schools to help them get into prestigious universities. And so I was lucky enough to get into this program and it got me into a very elite private school in a town called New Canaan, which is just a very, very wealthy, wealthy, privileged area. At one point, it had um, the highest per capita index of like millionaires and billionaires in the United States. It was just an incredibly privileged area. And so I I started at the school, McKinnon Country School. And um, when I entered, I immediately, it was the first time in my life that I had felt like deep shunning just from the look of a person. I had before gone to an, a magnet school where everybody looked how they looked and there are kids from all over the place. And, you know, people made fun of me for being Haitian, which is a totally different thing, but not for being black. That, that wasn't really like my experience. Right. And so coming into the school, I, I could see that people were like looking down on me. Like I, I could feel it. It was the first time I really felt looked down on, like somebody trying to make me feel small with their gaze alone. And so a few weeks into starting at the school, and, and by the way, I was like a truly type A kid. Like I, the oldest of seven kids, like my sense of power came from having straight A's, from being a great student, from always show, for always showing up. And so I remember in Spanish class, I turned in this homework. I was really excited about it. I had done, I knew I had done a really good job. And a week later, my Spanish teacher pulls me in, pulls me aside and say, says, Nellie, I, I want to show you this. And she shows me the assignment I had handed in and somebody had erased my name and wrote nigger on, on the name. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And, and I, when I like look back to like where the root of me believing I am, I am worth half as much came from it, that memory sticks out for me. 
And it's taken work to finally see like, no, 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 no. I'm not what they wrote on that piece of paper. I'm not like what the bullies said I was. In fact, I am the shadow they refuse to see, right? And that's, and if we think, if we look to the work of James Baldwin, who is so incisive on this topic, white America's challenge with Black America is the fact that they refuse to look at us, is the fact they refuse to see that we are their sisters and brothers as much as they are ours. And that our otherness comes from the otherness they feel inside. It has nothing to do with us. And so it's taken me time to actually embody and integrate and believe that that new thought, that new understanding. But yeah, that that experience was like a very deep, deep root of pain for me. Wow. I kind of like, even the teacher pulling you to show you, Yep. It's so like, to me. feels I like agree. the wrong approach. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> how did you feel, like, how were you received by your teachers? Like, I'm curious about that, too. Like, that experience with peers, you know, I grew up in Kansas. This stuff came up frequently. <laughs> um, you know, but like, and then, but it's like, when you have your teachers, I'm imagining at this school, there probably weren't any Black teachers. I didn't have any black teachers in my schools. So I can't imagine in this area that's like prestigious wealth, wealth, wealth upon wealth that they're gonna invite black teachers to join um, their schools. But like, what did that feel like as a student navigating those spaces? Oh, that's such a good question. And to answer your question, no, there were no black teachers. There was one black faculty member who led the diversity program who later on would tell me that I did not have the grades to get into the elite boarding school I wanted to get into. So there was just a lot of um, toxic, toxic energy there. But in terms of teachers, I hate to focus on the negative, but I should share that there were a number of teachers who absolutely did not think I was worthy to be in the room. Absolutely. I remember I had a math teacher who every single Monday would call on me for the craziest questions and who would essentially like insinuate that I didn't know the answers to anything. And that was definitely a tough one. But to be honest, I had one teacher, my French teacher, who was just a wonderfully kind human being who invested so much in me and who really believed that I could go wherever I wanted to go. And she was the reason why I felt worthy enough, truly worthy enough to send out the applications that I did to get out of that school and to get into a new one. So yeah, yeah, I do think when we're like looking into the shadows, it's always good to find like the people who, who provided light in those moments of darkness and to like send out a beam of gratitude to them as well absolutely absolutely otherwise you know you're just unpacking a lot of dark and painful stuff right you know like the healing work is a lot harder than the actual trauma we experience and so to be able to go through the archives and find some gratitude is really important in order to sustain yourself and so I'd love to hear it's the work for me I would love to hear about the work that you've been doing, especially since identifying some of these key moments that you're like, okay, I understand how I got here. I understand what's rooted within me, but now I need to do some uprooting. How do you, how did you start? Well, it was messy because I didn't really know what was going on. 
um, it, it really started two years ago where the work called me inward. And before that, I had been avoiding. I had been numbing myself out with work. I had been essentially doing anything that I could to escape what was being asked of me. And when I finally answered that inward call, a lot of the work was literally letting myself cry and like letting myself be in pain, letting myself feel angry because as black women, we are taught to be angry, to be an angry black woman is to be a stereotype that will devalue you, that will X, Y, and you know, we can insert whatever meaning or implication there is to that stereotype, but so many of us are taught we need to avoid looking angry in public spaces. And so I was just, excuse my language, fucking angry. I was really angry and I let myself feel angry. Um, and there was just like a few months of that. And then there was this moment of, it really felt like my spirit touching my soul and like awakening me and saying, okay, we need to now convert this, transform all of this feeling into creative good. And so I started painting again. I hadn't painted for years. Oh my gosh. I hadn't touched a paintbrush, but I felt called and I just bought myself a watercolor set and a gouache set. And I started painting and that was such a release. It was such a, it was such a wonderful coming home for a lot of reasons. One of which being I had been raised to believe that to be an artist was to be like so many things, but one of which like very much, you know, broken like the artists that I knew in my life were bro- like looked like broken people my parents told me that if you were an artist you would not be able to support yourself all of those things and so coming back to a space of like getting to create was so healing so powerful and then lately it's been writing again writing used to be my outlet it used to be my channel through going through school and educational institutions that told me I had to write certain things in a certain way that very much limited my sense of creative expression. And so lately I've been channeling a lot of my healing work into just writing little vignettes on lessons that I've gotten in the process, learnings from spirit, downloads that I get in meditation, um, and just like putting that in a space where I can be of value to others. So I'm putting together a little newsletter that'll share more insight and from that, just from all of those learnings. And my hope is to just reach out a hand to all of us who are trying to raise our vibe together and are doing this work because it is crucial. I can't wait to subscribe to that newsletter. The way that my eyes just lit up, I was like, please take me on this journey. Like this is such powerful releasing that you're doing, which is hard. It's hard sometimes to, I don't want to say to find the time because I think you have to make the time, but it's hard sometimes to figure out like what your path would be. Like I similarly grew up learning that artists is not something that you're going to be you're going to be something that makes money uh, where you can sustain yourself right because I and I'm a vocalist right I, I grew up singing and my parents were like that's cute don't do that full time um, and so like for me I'm like ooh, getting back into like any kind of singing practice is so restorative for me when I'm truly truly sad or angry because I get to those spaces often when I'm doing my own work right I feel so supported 
just by singing, singing to myself, singing in the shower, singing on my walks, which is kind of funny because people always look at me because I got my headphones <laughs> in and I forget because I'm like singing because the music is everywhere, right? And so, but it's just like, that is so, it's so powerful. Like I can't imagine me doing any of this when I was younger and releasing like this, like the crying that you spoke to, were you someone who would allow yourself to cry before this period of time? Oh God, no. If I, if I cried, I mean, and God bless my mother for all of, all of her work and all that she, she's been through, but she would tell me you better not be crying. You better not be crying because you are lucky. You didn't, you don't have to grow up in Haiti. Like I did where we didn't even, you know, we barely had enough to, to put on the table. And so there was a lot of denial of that inner just flow. Like crying is, it is a a release of emotional waters that need release. And so I think when a lot of us spend our time just clamping down on that inner flow, there's a lot that needs to come out. And so I spent like months straight. I mean, every other day I'd be crying. Oh, I went through that period too. And it wasn't, I don't, I don't know if it was any intention or activation that I had, but I just felt like every other day I was crying and I couldn't understand why, but I was like, this has to happen right now. So we're just going to let it out. Um, Good yeah, for you I, for not resisting it, by the way, because I resisted it. I was like, I should not be crying. Why am I crying so much? But I, you know, I'm not going to give myself that much credit because I, I did, I did resist for a while. I'm, I also am someone, and I've heard this from other friends recently, so I've learned that this might be more common than I thought, but when I cry, the aftermath is more painful to me, like, because my, my face burns, you know, it's almost like your body telling you, like, don't be doing this, this doesn't make you feel good, and so I used to resist it, because I was like, no, 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 crying is not for me, I... My body rejects crying, so we're obviously, and you know, we're stronger than that, that, that like, I had that in my um, family upbringing, is like, we don't cry, because we're strong people. So like, you don't cry over things, you solve them, which I still have to unpack a lot of that because sometimes you just need to cry. Like sometimes that is the solution. Um, But yeah, no, I, I, you know, kind of taking another path. I'm curious about some of the shadows that you uncovered. Like what were some of these things that you found? And you don't have to share all of them with us because I'm sure some of them are deeply personal, but like, what are some things that you uncovered that you're like, okay, this needed to be uncovered? Oh gosh. You know, this is a recent one that ties into what's no longer my ministry. Uh, just going back to having to do twice as much for half the work. I, one shadow that I had was that every single time I would get to work, I would feel constricted. I would feel like, Oh, why am I here? I don't like this. I don't want to do this. This is hard. And at the end of every day, I would feel depleted. I would literally feel like I had given everything. I had nothing left to give. I couldn't talk to my boyfriend. I just want to go to sleep. I have nothing. And through the work of unpacking and digging into that shadow, because there's a shadow there. What I learned is there was a seed of intergenerational trauma that what, what I had seen growing up is that my mom worked three jobs to support seven kids. And she would leave every day constricted why am I going to, I remember her saying like, oh, why am I having to go to this job? Why, why? And coming home so depleted, she needed help to take her shoes off. She was just like, I at like physically not here. And I had embodied that stress, that sense of depletion in work. And so that is a shadow I've had to unpack and say, 
I forgive myself for taking on what was not mine. I have compassion for my mother for trying her very best to provide a beautiful life for me and my, my siblings. And ultimately, this belongs to the capitalist system that we're in. It does not belong to me. And so I'm letting this one go. And that has been like really radical to say, like, I am literally liberating myself from this shadow and like taking that inner stand. Um, sometimes we just have to do that. Sometimes it's not even about like wading in the water of the shadow and swimming through it. Sometimes it's like, no, I'm cutting this off. This yeah. isn't mine. Now that I see what this is and I can see it for what it is, I'm letting it go. I love that because you're taking the necessary onus off of you, the individual and putting it back on the system. Right. And I think that is something that we all need to do more of. We, we have not been socialized to do that. We've been socialized to be like, well, this is obviously my fault. I can't keep up. I can't, you know, I can't really work in this space because I don't fit the mold. And it's like, actually, none of that is true. Um, there's a system in place that makes you feel that way. And the mold can change at any point in time if we let it. So like, let's just create something new. So I love that in your work, you're just like, you know what, let me let me take this burden off my back. This isn't yep. mine to carry, which- nope. And one thing I would add to, if you're a person of color listening to this podcast, there are roots of economic oppression that likely are sitting as seeds of intergenerational trauma inside of you. Like if you are the ancestor of a person who was enslaved, if you are the ancestor or if you are the descendant of somebody who um, was forced into migratory work, if you are the person of anybody who was forced by our capitalist system to believe that they were no longer valuable, there is a seed of intergenerational trauma there. There is. And when you find the seed, because it's going to show up in a very different way for every single person, but when you find it, cast it out, you get to say, you know what, this truly belongs to the system. This really doesn't belong to me. Yeah. And hopefully you can cut it off at the source. And as we work on ourselves collectively, hopefully our kids, our grandkids, will at least be a little bit further along, right? Because we have more resources now than our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors. We have more resources that allow us to do this work now and break some of these intergenerational curses. So yeah, I, I cannot, just all the work that you speak to, I'm like, this is such powerful stuff. Do you have a place for people like to get started with this work? You know, maybe... I feel like with all my guests, I ask them, like, people just don't know what they don't know, right? They come to this podcast, they listen, and they hear something. It's like, wow, I just didn't know that all of this has been collecting over time inside of me, almost like we're little hoarders of terrible <laughs> myths. <laughs> like, like, this is a hoarding show, y'all. And we've got all these myths inside. It's like a terribly ugly storage basement that we now need to start stripping things away. I, I'm becoming really fascinated by this analogy that I just started. Um, but like, where Love do it. you start when you have this ugly basement of stuff? How do you start chipping away in a way that is intentional in a way that doesn't, you know, get you to a place of burnout in this work? Mm. Oh, there's so many paths. There are so many paths. And I think part of, part of this is trusting yourself. Like I had to trust that I needed to feel what I was feeling. It was like, that was the, me answering the call was like letting myself feel that I was in deep sorrow. 
that there was deep pain, that I was angry and feeling through each and every single one of those feelings, carving out the landscape of what that felt like, tracking it in my body. When I'm angry, my shoulders get tense. When I'm ang- when I have anxiety or sadness, my stomach is full of knots. Like you really have to let yourself go inward and track where these feelings live in your body because that's the gateway. That really is the way inward. And we are taught in our society that to numb yourself is how you get through. Consume content, watch stuff, drink yourself to oblivion. That's the way. Eat a bunch of, like there's so many, like so many things that tell us don't look at your body, but that's the key. And so that's where I started. Um, And then it's like, like just being like a voracious reader and learner and like trying to find all of the spiritual teachers that are out there. A few that have been really powerful for me. I mean, I see James Baldwin as the, the ultimate spiritual teacher on race. Like I think he was carving out a very specific lens on um, systematic oppression through a, a very deeply like spiritual lens that I think is fascinating. So that I, James, his work has been really pivotal for me. Um, Eckhart Tolle, I mean, I think most people have heard of, of, um, of a new earth of, of his work, but if you haven't, I would say like, give it, give the audio a listen, give the book a listen. Like that, that book really asks you like, what does presence mean? And like, how do you step into it? Because what you need to be able to have the awareness that like, oh, I'm, I'm following into a loop here. or I'm like, I'm following a shadow here or there's a pattern inside of me that's being activated to do that. You need awareness. And for awareness, you need to be able to step into the seat of presence. And there, he gives really great practices on how to actually like feel through that and embody it. Um, None of us is perfect at it. I think he's probably the only one, but, and like the Dalai Lama, but that's okay. Um, So he's been really, really helpful. And I would say like, people like Oprah, like Oprah has put together such a beautiful body of spiritual work on just like bringing in great teachers who can help shed light on really powerful, important questions. So I've turned to her. Um, I would say the last teacher who's been really powerful for me is Gary Zukav. Um, His work on intention and on living in alignment with authentic power is truly revolutionary. And so I would say anybody who's interested in like trying to like go on their path of dharma, like trying to really like carve out their space in this world and live in alignment with their souls and not in alignment with what they've told to be, to do, been told to do, I would absolutely check out his work too. So that was a lot, but those are just a few of the teachers who helped me. I love that. I love that you dropped names. I'll include those in the notes. And also I love what you started with, which is something that my therapist told me and like at first I was like, girl, you must be tripping. Um, feel your feelings. I remember when my, my first therapist told me this and I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was like, cool girl. I'm not going to do that. You don't understand what that means. I have to unleash, but it's, it's truly something that I, I haven't regretted since I've started to feel my feelings. I have a very avoidant, or at least I used to have a very avoidant personality. I really worked on numbing a lot of my pain, um, which is, which required like a lot of substances. Right. And these days I'm like, actually what feels better than once again, going back to the alcohol conversation, drinking my wine is like feeling my feelings and then letting them go. 
Cause then I don't have to keep drinking the wine to keep up with the feelings that are building up. Like you have to release. Right. And so I just feel like that first step of starting there, which a lot of people aren't at yet. So like start there, start feeling your feelings, really try to process what you experience and you don't have to do it right away. That was another thing. When my therapist told me that I was like, I don't want to do that, especially not in the moment. You don't have to. So if you're like, let me take a break and read this book or watch this show or just lay here mindlessly do that and then schedule some time to feel your feelings. So I like that you started there. And then the books, honestly, like those are a lot of great leaders, a lot of wonderful leaders. And I am all about like, if you need to do audio or whatever the case may be, like leaning into the expertise of other people. That's why I bring wonderful guests like you on here, like lean into other people to just kind of guide you. It just feels like you have all of these mentors, whether or not you engage with them in conversation, you get a lot of their learnings and you can kind of move through the path that they've already laid out for you. It makes it a lot less arduous. So thank you for that. And we're going to close with our last segment, I'm Not Sorry, which is when we just don't apologize for taking breaks from the work and we get to do what we want to do in that time. So how do you kind of take a break from the work and do things that are affirming to you and your being? Oh my gosh. I paint, I write, I skateboard. I've taken up skateboarding and I'm loving it for so many reasons. Um, Surfing, which is like such a fucking white sport, but like me with my like Afro in the waves, I'm like, yes, I am gliding on mama oceans waves too. So that has been like really powerful for me. I love that. You do two things that I never would. Skateboarding. I I roller skate and the idea of having two feet on a board, I'm like, nah, that's going to take me out for sure. Surfing, I can't swim. (laughs) So already I can't, I can't like imagine myself surfing, but I'm like, that's terrifying, but good for you for going out there with your Afro being amongst the whites. Like (laughs) that, that's got to feel empowering. I love going into spaces with mostly white people and being like, I'm here. (laughs) Yep. Hello. Yeah. I get out there and I say hello to everyone. Cheer people on. Yes. Yes. That's what we have to do. Um, wow. That is so funny. By the way, I'm trying to take up rollerblading. It's like on my list of all of the new hobbies that I don't have enough time to do, but one day my goal is to get out there. It's so fun. But I mean, like the skate community as a whole, skateboarders, roller skaters, rollerbladers, I love the community. Everybody is always like, yes, come into the fold. Yes, all levels. Oh, you fell down. I fell down earlier and I've been doing this for years. Like they're the most affirming group I've ever been a part of. And as intimidated as I am to get into any, I go to a lot of spaces where they're like dance skating. That's not my thing yet because I don't know this tricks. Like <laughs> I'm still working on my moonwalk, which I'm pretty good at, but that's the only thing I can do. It's like they're skating circles around me backwards. And I just, but I love it. It's very much freeing. I feel like there are no rules and that's why mm. I like it. At first it was an intimidating process to me for that reason. Like I was like, but what, how do I be successful? <laughs> girl is skating. And then I was like, oh girl, the conditioning. <laughs> it's so funny because you go in with that energy and then everyone else who's skating around you is so chill and so just like in the flow and like having fun and there's no question of success it's just like we're out here we showed up that's all that matters great we need those models because then after my like second or third time being out there I was like oh I'm just gonna chill and I (laughs) enjoyed it so much more I've learned so much more it's all like humor is a part of the experience and I love that 
So I just, yeah, I love that you have all of these ways to just like detach from the work. And, and also like, I feel like a lot of those activities help us get back to the work in more powerful and intentional oh. ways. Oh my God. Every single one of those practices has taught me a less a life lesson that like I take with me every single day. Surfing has taught me drop into waves, even if they're huge, even if you're terrified. Skating has taught me, even if you fall on your ass, it doesn't matter. You can get back up. And it's like the most cheesy thing, but when you actually fall and then you get back up and then you keep going, it's like, Oh yeah, I can do that. I can do this. Yeah. And it's not as scary as you think. Falling is not as scary as you think it'll be. It's like, you know, but wear some knee pads, definitely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but to all my friends who want to go roller skating, wear some knee pads because you will fall. Is there any last thing you want? Any last gem you want to drop for the listeners? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I just want to thank you, Nadia, for making this space. I want to thank everybody for listening. I also just want to affirm, like, the work you're doing matters. We are as a society, we are on the cusp of a major revolution. Like there is a shift in consciousness that is happening and we're being asked to unpack our shadows, step into the light and really shine. And I just am cheering each and every single one of you on as you do that. This podcast is a labor of love and too often labor by black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that's no longer my ministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning into next week's community release. Bye fam.